Welcome to the All Things Protest Podcast. I'm Olivia Lynch, and I'm joined here today with my co-hosts, Rob Sneckenberg and Christian Curran. So to kick off the new year, we're going to talk about corrective action, focusing on the standard applied to agencies when taking corrective action, and highlighting pitfalls that protesters have to be aware of once corrective action is announced. So agencies have broad discretion to take corrective action anytime that an agency has determined that such action is necessary to ensure fair and impartial competition. And agencies can really take corrective action for any reason, whether it was an issue identified in the protest or not. And in particular at GAO, they're not concerned if the agency is resolving allegations raised in the protest. GAO's focus is going to be on whether the agency's corrective action remedies the reason that prompted the agency to take corrective action. And just from a timing perspective, typically agencies are taking corrective action in advance of filing the agency report and actually briefing issues. So at the point where oftentimes we're trying to duke out about the scope of corrective action, GAO doesn't really have a good sense of the merits of the allegations and hasn't really delved into the substance. And similarly, when we'll get this a bit more later, but you can challenge the scope of a corrective action at GAO or at the court. But the court, like GAO, is going to apply, uh, give a lot of deference to the agency and only look to whether the corrective action is rationally related to the reasons the agency sets forth. So especially if you don't have a record yet, as Olivia is saying, it can be really hard to challenge some of those scope decisions. I know when I get a notice of corrective action, the first thing I do is assess what type of relief we're actually getting and ensuring that if I'm a protester, all of the arguments that we raised in the protest to date are preserved for potential future litigation. The way I look at the corrective action notice, it essentially sets the ground rules for the reevaluation during corrective action. So if you as a protester do not agree that the ground rules are reasonable or fair or they are going to comport with the solicitation or any particular procurement reg, GAO's timeliness rules and case law don't give you the luxury of sitting back and seeing what new award decision is made and then complaining about the fairness of the process later. So generally, in my view, the broader the corrective action, the less concern you're going to have as a protester. For example, if you have a notice that states the agency is going to go back and reevaluate proposals under all factors, that's likely going to leave most of your arguments on the table for any potential post-corrective action award protest. But as with everything in protest, there's always complexities and exceptions. So can you guys talk about complexities that you've seen? So, I mean, certainly the biggest complexity with corrective action notices is going to be discussions. And it, this may sound nitpicky, but you really have to stare at that notice of corrective action and look at the exact words used. Is the notice clear or specific as to whether or not the agency is going to be reopening discussions? So, for example, if you had a discussion challenge in your initial protest and the agency says it's going to take corrective action reevaluate proposals but not reopen discussions, well, then you're on the clock to protest that and say, we still need discussions here. Christian, I think there's some recent case law out of GAO that really touches on this. You want to address that? Sure, Rob. And you're exactly right. It's a very nuanced thing that you have to be very aware of because on the one hand, you could be premature if you're protesting something where there's an indication that there may be discussions. And on the other hand, you could be untimely later if you don't take issue with it up front. And there was a recent case at the end of the year put out a GAO, Millennium Engineering and Integration Company, 
It's B417359.4. That came out December 3rd. And this is a good example of the timeliness trap that you can fall into here. In this case, the agency took corrective action, a Millennium's post-award protest, and as part of that corrective action, the agency simply stated that it would reevaluate previously submitted proposals and issue a new source selection decision. So the notice of corrective action was noticeably silent on what was going to happen with discussions. It didn't carve them out as a possibility. It didn't say there weren't going to be. Millennium protested again and in a post-award context when the award didn't go to them and, and challenged the fact that the agency had not conducted discussions as part of the corrective action. And GAO found that it was clearly untimely, mainly because the notice of corrective action did not state that discussions were going to happen and specifically did not carve them out as a possibility. Millennium tried to argue that the notice said the corrective action will include reevaluation, implying that it may also include other things. But GAO said no. They found specifically that Millennium knew or should have known that the agency did not intend to hold additional discussions and or permit the submission of revised proposals as part of its corrective action. So in that case, this is a perfect example of where not filing a pre-award protest in this instance would have been a problem. And so to give some context as to how this probably should have gone down, once that notice of corrective action came out, the GAO found that Millennium was on notice. And the notice of corrective action also didn't provide for any proposal revisions. So in that case, Millennium would have had to protest the fact that there weren't going to be discussions in the corrective action within 10 days of the notice. Now, had the notice provided that there were going to be changes to the solicitation and somehow or another final proposal revisions, they could have protested the lack of discussions up to the date of the resubmission. But that wasn't the case here, so it would have had to been within 10 days. Another consideration here is whether Millennium would have been premature, or whether offerors would be premature if they file protests. And that's kind of what Millennium argued with the included language, right? Because it said included, it didn't necessarily prohibit discussions. In this case, just the language of include is not enough. But had the agency said something like, we reserve the right to hold discussions if and when warranted by our reevaluation, that's a different situation where the agency is expressly reserving the right to hold discussions. Had Millennium protested that language pre-award, they likely would have been found to be premature because the agency had clearly carved it out. So this is, Rob, exactly to your point. The language can be squirrely and you really need to understand what the import of it is. And even if there seems to be some indication or it's not clear, you really need to evaluate whether you need to file something to preserve your rights. And sometimes if it gets kicked as premature, that's better than being untimely later, but you really need to examine it. Up until now, we've been talking from the protester's perspective, but when representing the intervener, what can you do up to and during the corrective action? So I think this gets back to what I alluded to before about the standard for challenging corrective action and, you know, especially at the court and with the Dell decision. So if you're the intervener, JAO will likely give you an opportunity to comment on the corrective action when the notice comes out. You can say whatever you want in that comment, but unless you feel very strongly about it, JAO is probably not going to really care what you say in your comment 
or take action based on your comment. Instead, if you feel that the corrective action is, say, overbroad, then it's incumbent upon you to file a protest challenging the corrective action as too broad. Such challenges at GAO, very, very, very difficult. You may have better luck at court. But even there, the agency, again, is going to get a lot of deference. There used to be some judges that would say that the corrective action has to be narrowly tailored or narrowly targeted to the specific flaws at issue. But a couple of years ago, the Federal Circuit kicked that standard in the Dell decision. And now an agency's corrective action just needs to be rationally related to the errors, either the errors identified by the protester or the errors identified independently by the agency. So agencies get a lot of discretion. Getting back to the whole discussions point and, you know, really focusing on whether or not discussions are going to be reopened in a procurement, that's probably your best argument. If the error at issue is one that in no way necessitates discussions or impacted discussions, that still might be your best argument for challenging a corrective action as overbroad. If the agency says, okay, we misevaluated this one thing, but instead of just reevaluating that, we're going to reopen discussions and allow everyone to revise their price proposals after prices have been released. That's an area where you may still get some traction, but nowadays it's going to be a difficult challenge to challenge the scope of a corrective action as overbroad. As I, I mentioned earlier, the standard that GAO uses when determining whether a corrective action should be allowed to proceed is whether the corrective action remedies the concern that caused the agency to take the corrective action. So what we're seeing a lot is that agencies don't give a particular reason why they're taking corrective action and just say instead that they've reviewed the procurement record and it's appropriate to take corrective action. In that type of situation, do you really have any ability to challenge the scope of the corrective action where you can't even say it's not meeting the standard? That's a really good point, Olivia. And I agree. I think agencies sometimes are trying to cover and also preserve, right? They may not know exactly what they're going to do yet. So in that instance, and to Rob's points earlier, you need to make sure that it's whatever they've announced is kind of broad enough to cover your issues. And if it's not, then you need to weigh whether you need to object and or protest to preserve your rights to bring those issues in a future post-award protest. But I mean, practically speaking, if the agency just gives a broad thing and just says, we've examined the allegations and we're going to reevaluate, conduct discussions, whatever it is, and they essentially don't give a reason, there's not really much you can do to get a reason from them. As Rob pointed out, you could consider protesting and say, well, this is just overly broad because maybe the protest was very narrow. But as you pointed out in the beginning, Olivia, the agencies can take corrective action for any reason or no reason. So that really, it's not going to get you anywhere in most cases, but it's something else that you've got to evaluate. And again, making sure you're aware of for if no other reason than to just avoid a timeliness trap. So final question, in your guys' opinion? Having litigated corrective action scope challenges, reading the case law that comes out of GAO and the court, how successful are challenges to the scope of a corrective action? So I think, again, it gets back to how you define success. If you define success as, you know, if you file the lawsuit, would you get a decision at the end of the day in your favor? That's going to be harder. But a lot of this, again, comes down to the nuanced language and the specific facts of your case and what the agency is doing. So really paying attention to the notice and probing and objecting if need be, or asking the agency to clarify, success really can be achieved if you pay attention and are on top of it to get the agency into a position where, regardless of what the agency does, you're not waiving your rights to challenge something in the future. 
So personally, I think that by that metric, you can have success when you're evaluating and you know discussing with the agency and or commenting on a corrective action. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, I think just if you look at the numbers, the amount of sustains are, are just overwhelmingly lower than the amount of denials on these protests. But I think a lot of them don't go to decision because to Rob's point, it's how you measure success. If you file a protest, for instance, and where there's wishy-washy language on discussions and and the agency refuses to kind of budge on it, and so you you file a protest to preserve your right, and then the agency has to decide, is it worth litigating this, or should I just put in language to say, okay, we may decide to open discussions, right? And then you get yourself to the point where you've preserved that issue if you feel that the agency doesn't deal with it correctly on corrective action, you can then raise it later. But had you not done that, you'd be foreclosed from doing it later. So success from that standpoint, I think there can be a decent amount of it, even though these are fact specific. You know, again, you're, you're really a lot of the back and forth here is not necessarily about an ultimate win in the protest, but preserving your rights and keeping things honest as the corrective action goes forward. That's all for today. Thanks for listening. The All Things Protest podcast is brought to you by Kroll & Mooring LLP. You can find more information at kroll.com slash allthingsprotest.